This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. a special episode of Pantsuit Politics for you today. We are sharing our conversation with Dr. Becky Kennedy, a clinical psychologist who shot to fame on Instagram during the COVID-19 pandemic and now leads an online community of several thousand and has a new book out called Good Inside. And we are so thrilled to have her on our show today. We want to make sure to say that although Dr. Becky's expertise is around parenting, this is not an episode that is just for parents. Dr. Becky has something to say about politics here. Mm-hmm. As you'll hear, this conversation is about human connection and communication and about how we were raised and our choices to break cycles and patterns that have been ingrained in us. So everybody doesn't have kids, but everybody was a kid and our childhoods Mm -hmm. seriously impact our civic life. And we are so delighted that Dr. Becky is here to talk about that with us. Now, before we get to Dr. Becky, we are currently on the road in Oklahoma City and are so thrilled to be out again speaking at college campuses and organizations. And the conversations we have with all of you when we're in person doing workshops and Q&As are unlike any we have anywhere else. So if you'd like to bring us to your campus or organization or business, just check out our show notes. We'll have links to the events page on our website, or you can email Elise at hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We only have seven spots left for 2023, and we would love to come see you. Up next, our conversation with Dr. Becky Kennedy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Becky Kennedy today. Dr. Becky, welcome to Fancy Politics. So happy to be here. Thank you. We have a lot that we would like to talk with you about because we love your book, Good Inside. And I just want to start with the fundamental premise because your whole book is based on the idea that we are all actually good. 
that we are good people having feelings that are allowed and experiences that are challenging. And I know this book is not about politics, but that premise says so much about how we orient ourselves in the world. So can you tell us how you decided this would be your foundation? Because there is there's a worldview represented in people's politics that says we are not good inside and people can't be trusted because they are racist or because they are selfish and greedy or they are immoral. So I would just love to hear how you decided this would be your foundation. Well, I love so much that you're linking that. And I really do think this book is about humans and human relationships, mm-hmm. period. Yep. And actually just remembering that our kids are are human. It sounds obvious, but we're really taught this model of raising kids um, that's very disrespectful of kids, as if kids don't have thoughts and feelings and, you know, things that are very real in them. And often looking at their struggles through the lens of like, what is wrong with my child? They're such a, like, they're so bad. And so we're given this approach, this behavioral, behavior first approach that's really behavior modification or behavior shaping as our model for raising children, right? As if like I can just shape them and mold them. And at the end of the day, I don't know, I'm sure the two of you think about this in other contexts, but I think control and trust are opposites. And I think Mm. in all of our relationships, it's really powerful to think about that. I'm going to need a moment with that. I'm going to need a moment with control and trust Mm -hmm. as opposites. Everybody just take a breath and breathe through that because I just had a moment. That is good. That is very good. We only control someone we don't trust and we Mm. only don't trust someone because we believe there's an inherent badness or the absence of goodness. And so good inside, like it's so simple. Like it's like nobody ever says like, well, treat your child this way because they're bad inside. If anyone like explicitly said that, we'd be like, well, that sounds like really harsh, you know, but it's kind of radical. I think it's very radical to develop an approach for helping raise kids that starts with the assumption of goodness. And then people do this thing a lot. They're like, oh, so they're good inside. So it's okay that they hit their brother. Like, Mm -hmm. of course not. Like we don't have to collapse identity into behavior. I think that's collapsed all the time for people, for adults, for kids. No, actually, because I know my kid is good inside and hitting their brother. Now I can be curious about why. Now I can embody my own authority with boundaries, but because I know they're good inside, I can ask myself instead of what is wrong with my kid. I can say, what skills does my child need to change this behavior? What are they missing? What are they struggling with? And the questions we ask determine the interventions we use. Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea of good inside allows us to just start really asking different questions about our kids. Well, as I was reading the book, I thought in some ways it felt like you were embracing this idea that's sort of fallen out of favor, that children are not little adults. Children are not little adults. They're different. But it's almost like you were saying, no, we are the same, but you're flipping it. You're saying they're not like adults. We're like them. Like, we are like them. We are struggling with the same things we're struggling with. We are the same. We are the same. Trying to delineate, like you said, this book is about humans, and they're humans, and we're humans, and we're struggling with the same thing. We just express them differently. Yes, right. And I think I think a great example of this is like, you know, parents more than anything else, they come, they're like, my kid doesn't listen to me. My kid doesn't listen to me. And then we go into my kids so disrespectful. My kid's never going to listen to anyone. How are they going to ever have a job? Like we fast forward their life 30 years and we're just spiraling. But going back to that idea that you just said, Sarah, like, wait, okay, let me think about what's happening with my kid. How can I put myself in their shoes? So let's go through this. I'm sitting on the couch. My kids are sleeping. I'm sitting on the couch, finally relaxing for the like 30 seconds parents have to relax maybe reading a book. And let's say my husband's also sitting on the couch. And he says to me, hey, Becky, can you go get me water? And if I look at him and I'm like, oh, we're both sitting on the couch. Like, no, you know, if he said to me, you have a listening problem and you don't respect me and you can't watch TV for a week, right? I mean, at best that's gaslighting. I'd be like, what? Like, I just don't want to do the thing you asked me to do. And also I would add, if during the day he was always distracted, if during the day I was trying to talk to him about things and he was on his phone, if during the day I felt like he was yelling at me constantly, there's no way I'd get him that water. Mm-hmm. If during the day I felt close to him, if I was like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. He's like, yeah, let me put my phone away. Let me like really listen. And I felt close to him. Guess what? When he asked me to get that water, I probably would get it for him. And so when we think about it that way, 
a lot of us, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, we're yelling at our kids, we're not connecting to them, we're on our phones, we're not joining their world. And then we ask them to do something they don't want to do. And then we label them as having a problem. And then we get into a spiral of punishment. And yeah, I think putting ourselves in our kids' shoes and just saying, wait, they need the same things I need. They need to feel safe. They need to feel respected. They don't need to get everything they want. No way. They need to feel real and seen. And they need that safety. And maybe if I treat them a little bit more from that approach, maybe a lot of things in our house are, are going to start being a lot more peaceful. And again, that is universally applicable to all humans. I came to this point in your book because we both have new books. And I read this passage. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Understanding and convincing are two diametrically opposed ways of approaching other people. So a powerful first step in any interaction is to notice which mode you're in. When you're in one thing is true mode, you're judgmental and reactive to someone else's experience because it feels like an assault on your own truth. As a result, you will seek to prove your own point of view, which in turn makes the other person defensive because they need to uphold the realness of their experience. Now, I could have read that passage, and I think most people probably would have guessed it's from our book (laughs) about political conversations. And I thought, man, you could lift this paragraph and put it in books about political conversations, in books about marriage, in books about coworkers, in books about our polarized society. Like that encompasses so much of human interaction is I love the one thing is true versus two things can be true here. And the fact that I'm talking to you too is is really so rewarding because so often our team, maybe a whole team at Gunside, we do a bunch of different things, right? The applications are exactly to politics are just right there. Like this is what happens. It's like we all get into this one thing is true mode where it's like, I can't put my experience that I know to be true. Like I can hold on to the truth, but to the side, to listen to your experience. It almost feels like, well, if I'm listening, I agree. Like we collapse these things. Well, if I'm listening and trying to understand how you feel, then it means I'm wrong. Like what, Mm -hmm. why? Like how did we get to this place? Like, you know, I can feel like blue is my favorite color. And Beth, you can feel like red is your favorite color. And like, I could try to understand that. And it doesn't mean red's my favorite color, like (laughs) period. Like, it means I'm trying to understand what you like about red. And I didn't even mean to choose political politics. <laughs> this is obviously, purple. like, deep in my psyche. Yeah, purple and green. Whatever it is, right? Like, you can like soccer, and I cannot like soccer. Those can both be true. Neither of us is right. Neither of us is a better person. But if I want to be in a relationship with you and have any progress in any conversation, I better be able to understand and listen to why you like soccer. That's real. And... I think about this big idea. Like, and I'm going to cry thinking about this. We cry a lot here. It's fine. This is a crying safe space. Uh, this is crying. Good. We are all more attached to feeling seen than we are to holding on to any particular belief we have. The only reason we get so rigid in a belief, any belief, even if it starts to work against us, is because we don't feel seen for feeling like a good person with that belief. And this is what politics, I mean, it is just in like, it's insane. This has just happened and polarized and polarized. And now people are defending their specific beliefs to the grave because it's their way of saying like, I'm a good person because mm-hmm. no one on the other side will see that I'm a good person with this belief. So now the belief is more important than anything else. And then we have this, yeah, this nation that cannot communicate with each other and is getting more and more rigid to the detriment of even both parties, like to themselves. Nobody is winning here. Mm -hmm. Nobody is winning. When you gave that couch example, I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't get mad at my partner for asking for a glass of water while I'm on the couch because we're in a generally good time in our marriage. There are probably times when I would have. And I certainly can translate that to like coworkers that you have toxicity with. You would get mad about the water question. You would say, how do they not know I'm finally relaxing? And you would definitely say like, how dare a Democrat ask me for a glass of water mm. while I'm relaxed? I mean, we would de- we definitely collapse that identity and behavior. I think that's so helpful to think about the fact that we're almost starting with our kids the way we would start with the most toxic people and relationships in our lives. And that leads us to behave in a really disconnecting way. And then some of us go to the other extreme. So I loved your introduction to Chapter 10 where you write that you don't want your kids to look back when they're older and see you as someone who was completely self-sacrificing. 
that really flips the definition of virtuous motherhood mm-hmm. that we have absorbed from political messaging, some of us from religious messaging, certainly from social conditioning and cultural conditioning. And I would love to hear you talk about that in a little bit more detail. Oh my God. Now I'm going to, this is like my favorite thing to talk about. Like my favorite <laughs> Listen, it reminds me of that moment in the Disney guidebook and they have this little section where it's like, oh, and by the way, this is how to discipline children. It's kind of funny. And it's like in your book, it's like, oh, by the way, can we talk about <laughs> the patriarchy in these couple pages real, fa- real fast? Just real, yeah. real fast. It always goes back to that. Like when my team is <laughs> like, my team, I'm like, I've done a lot of these book interviews. And they're like, can you just like stop talking about the patriarchy? I'm supposed to just talk about your book. Just no. like mention the book. Just mention it once, you know? So I mentioned, so I'm going to say book. And now we can talk about the important things. Yeah. <laughs> so the definition of being a good woman is being a person without any access to their own desire. Oh my God. Period. Forget even speaking up based on desire. It's like not even having access. Like the further away that is, the more we fit into this female and and, and definitely mother role. Martyrdom is the model for good motherhood. Mm. And it's bananas. It's bananas for so many reasons. Like, I mean, it's bananas because we can never, as a gender, as a person, feel confident, feel empowered if we don't have access to the very thing that makes us feel like an alive human person, which is our desire and our wants and our needs. Now, for our kids, there is nothing that terrifies me as much as a selfless mother. Like, that Mm -hmm. literally gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like, as a mother or a father, as a parent, you are the leader. You are the pilot of your plane. Like, think about being on a plane. And like we know, planes have turbulence. Guess what? Families and kids have a lot of turbulence. Like, think about being on a turbulent plane and basically having a pilot say this, it is really turbulent. I'm going to open the cockpit door. Like, does anyone there know how to like (laughs) deal with this? Because like, I don't really know what I want or what I need or what to do in this situation. Like, if you're like me, you're not even scared of the turbulence. You're just terrified that you have a pilot who can't take you through with groundedness, the difficult air that you're going through. And kids feel selflessness. Kids Mm -hmm. feel the fact that their parents can't locate themselves. And then it it leads to kids, they fear themselves because they almost watch themselves take over. They're like, wow, I could overcome the cockpit and like take over the pilot seat. I'm only five. Like, why am I making these decisions? Chaotic, man. Chaotic, right? Like, One of the things for kids I often think about is like, our kids can only learn to tolerate in themselves what their parents can tolerate in them. Mm. Our kids can never learn to tolerate an experience or an emotion that their parents can't tolerate in them. So when they, guess what happens in all relationships? You don't get all your needs met. We know this as adults, Mm. it's still hard, but we don't, right? And we have to learn to cope with that and realize, okay, there's still something in me and I can get through this. This is what happened before I'm traveling now for my book tour as I talked to you. And, and my almost 11-year-old said something really profound the night before. He just said, like, I liked it a lot better when you work two days a week. All this traveling and you're doing, you know? And, and here's the thing. Like, of course he feels that way. Right. Right. Of course he feels that way. But one of the things I know, and I don't need his approval for this, and but one of the things I know is like this movement, these conversations, they light me up inside. They give me they give me purpose. They make me have a feeling of impact. They make me excited. Those feelings matter in my body. They, they yes, I actually think they make me a better parent because I'm not drowning in emptiness and then trying to fulfill myself through the perfection of my kids. But also separate from that, I just feel like I'm a person who deserves to have purpose and excited feelings. And it's so important for me to own that for myself, not to need that approval for my kid. So I can even just be there. Of course you want that. I get it. You're going to miss me. I'm going to miss you too. And I know we're going to get through this. And the selflessness that mothers, you know, have been fed for generations is one where we feel like we can fill ourselves up by pouring ourselves out. If Mm. I just keep pouring myself out over and over and over, that's how I'll fulfill myself. Like the math just doesn't work. And it's time for us to collectively change this. Can I just say that it feels really affirming to hear you say this exact example? Because last night I said to my 11-year-old who did not want me to go to a concert, your feelings are important to me and they're not in charge of my schedule. And it was hard. It was very, very hard. But Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Like I want 
when she is a mom, I want her to go to the concert, you know, <laughs> not to be beholden to her 11-year-old. So that is always kind of my guiding light. Yes. Well, and it's a trap for what we really want, which is like this connected relationship with our kids. I cannot stop thinking about that Atlantic piece about family estrangement. I don't know if you saw it, but it was really good. It was just talking about like our expectations of families have changed. They used to be mutual responsibility, mutual obligation. And now there's this, you know, mutual fulfillment and this idea that like we will make each other happy. We will we are responsible for each other's happiness in this. Again, it's like this thing that we want so desperately for our kids to be happy and to be connected to them. The story we're told about how to get there is a dang trap because then they if they're not happy, they blame you. (laughs) If they're not happy Mm -hmm. in adulthood, they think, well, you're the one that was supposed to be making me happy this whole time and I'm not happy, so you must be responsible. Or they feel weirdly responsible for our own happiness because what yes. we've told them is you are the source of my happiness, which is too much dank pressure for a child or an adult. And it's like it's not just like it's a personal failing. It's this cultural message we're told is a trap. We're not even getting what we want, what we so desperately want from making all these sacrifices. Exactly. And then I think, you know, what happens is so many women as moms, right? You have this narrative like give, 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 and it's just about caretaking of others. And of course you have emptiness and any need or want, right? That of course they're all still there in our body. And then every once in a while they scream out and you have these moments of like mom rage, Mm -hmm. right? And then women go into like, what's wrong with me? Um, Right? Like what's wrong with me? I messed up my kids forever. I'm a monster. I'm a horrible person versus wait, like maybe that's my body screaming out. That like, I haven't eaten in a long time, basically. I'm starving. (laughs) I'm starving. And it doesn't make it okay that I wait to the point that I'm starving, that I yell at someone. But the answer isn't, I'm a bad parent. The answer is, wow, like I have needs that, that are beyond taking care of others that matter. My wants are there. They're trying to get my attention, right? I'm not a bad parent. I'm a good parent who needs to pay attention to my wants and needs earlier. And that matters. And I think as soon as women shift from what is wrong with me to what resources and support do I deserve and how can I go get them, I think that's going to be like a a, a major world change. (laughs) Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. suggest to what I'm guessing is your primarily female audience on Mm -hmm. Instagram and for this book that they engage male partners in the process of like reading the parenting books Mm -hmm. or getting some information about parenting. Yes. And I think so many of the things we've already talked about here come together there. So a lot of times it is often women who will say, hey, could you meet with me and my husband? Could you like do the thing you do and like convince them that this is the right way and I need them to do more? And again, I'm like, no, I actually don't do that. And number one is like convincing is just never effective. If you want me to make your partner more distant, I will do that. But that that's what will happen, right? So I actually think there's like a big paradox here when you want someone to kind of get on board, right? The paradox is you have to start with actually understanding what's going on for them mm. first. Because when they feel connected to you and when they feel from you, like you see them as a good person who's not doing something, which is still true, right? Then they're going to become much more flexible. So I think even this book, right? Like we have this way of approaching people, especially right in parenting, because of course we're so frustrated that that just widens the gap. Hey, you know, I got this book. I'm doing all this work. You do nothing. Like, look, you're not only here to have your other job and like we had these kids together. like. And I can say those words because they've come out of my mouth too. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> all the other person here is, is you're a bad person. You're a horrible mm-hmm. human being. And then their energy has to go to defending that, right? So they're like, well, you know, you don't, you don't make money. Like someone has to make money, right? Or something like that. And you're like, what, how do we get here? I'm just trying to get you to read a book. Like yeah. what happened? So I think the start is number one, going from criticizing to the sentence structure, which is so hard for women because again, We've learned to distance ourselves from our wants and needs, but the sentence structure is I want and I need, Mm. or I feel and I need, right? Like I feel overwhelmed, like having a lot of like the parenting stuff on me. I know we're both really busy. I know we actually both want the same things for our kids. Like our, I know we want that. I know we want them to grow up and be like happy, confident, self-assured, self-trusting human beings. And I also know that I need your help in that process. And one of the things I thought we could do is like read a book together. The truth is I'm going to like some things in the book and you're not. You're going to like some things in the book and I'm not. But now at least we have a reference, like a third thing to just use to Mm. have a conversation. And it's not a way of saying you're a bad parent. It's not a way of saying you're doing anything wrong. It's actually just a way of saying we're actually really on the same team. Let's do this together. What do you think? Could we have that book club? Like most human beings are going to hear that. And they're going to be like, oh, like you want me involved. Like you want me on your team. It's such a different approach and it's so much more effective. Well, what do you say to the people who are single parents or have a lack of resources who say, I don't even have the bandwidth to get started? No. So number one, I'd say you are a warrior. Like you are a warrior. I am a married parent, right? And I have a partner who's very involved and like parenting is so overwhelming (laughs) to me. So I would say two different things. So number one, I think as humans, we just have to start recognizing, like, am I in survival mode or am I in skill building mode Mm -hmm. in my life? Because when we're in survival mode, chastising ourselves for not being in skill building mode, first of all, just makes the survival mode last longer because now we're adding shame and guilt, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is really hard to cope with. And when you're in survival mode, like we need survival mode strategies, right? So finding a moment in a day, one, to put your feet on the ground and place your hand on your heart and say, like, you know, I'm a good parent who's feeling over, very overwhelmed. 
Like those are the type of strategies we need, like figuring out what friend you have who can just text you something at 5 p.m. when you're a single parent doing bath time every night. That's like, hey, I know this is a hard time. Like you're doing a great job. I'm thinking about you. Like I'm probably not during those phases, like taking a workshop. And like, it doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me a person who has very limited energy and resources and using them wisely and trying not to add on guilt and shame to my already (laughs) limited resources. So I think just recognizing that is huge. Now, there's a, a, there's a second thing, which you didn't say this exactly, Sarah, but what some parents say to me also is like, I don't have the time for this. I don't have the time, right? It takes time to read a book or it takes the time to like proactively talk to your kid about their feelings or yes. The thing about time I think is interesting is like, I've worked with so many families who say this and what I'll say to them is I'm like, you, you spend a lot of time in power struggles with your kid. Like you even spend a lot of time spiraling, feeling like a bad parent. Like you've told me it literally wakes you up at night. Like you literally can't fall asleep. That is time. And sometimes I think it's it's just a matter of like how we spend our time. You know, we spend our time, I think, learning things that make us feel empowered. Or we spend our time like feeling really shitty about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And like that bucket is really common and really known for a lot of us because often we didn't get what we needed. And so we we spent that time earlier. And I think that's just a, it's a powerful way to think about it, that it's not like that takes time. It's just like, what bucket of time am I, you know, am I entering into. I like how you address this book to people as cycle breakers. I think that is one of the most political ideas in the book, too, that you can move out of unconsciously behaving from all the stuff that you have absorbed in your life to kind of consciously looking at that stuff and saying, I want to choose differently now, or I want to choose to integrate that stuff in this way. It is very hard to break a cycle in a culture that perpetuates cycles. So I would just love to hear how you address that in your practice and how you think about the political implications of cycle breaking. I mean, cycle breakers, to me, is anybody who's saying like kind of the generations before me did things in a certain way. And like I have the chills, like I'm the one who's like looking at all of that lineage and at least to some degree putting my hand up and saying like, no. Like this stops with me. And the reason being a psycho breaker is so challenging is because if you really think about the imagery of that, you're not just putting a hand up to like the way your parents did things, who I'm sure were, you know, doing the best they could, even if it wasn't, you know, good enough for you. You're putting a hand up to like generations. There's like a real weight to that. And like, you're actually a pivot point for all the generations to come. Like if you're like, I'm the first person in my family who recognizes my kids' feelings. That doesn't mean I give in to them. People always collapse them. It means, no, I'm not saying, sure, then we'll get the toy. It just means when they're crying on the toy store, I'm saying, it's really hard to see toys and not get them. Like, I'm actually going to say that. Like, no one else would say that in my family. Well, that's epic. That is like epic. That is so hard. And so number one, I would say, if you're listening and you're in that role, you know, just give yourself a moment to really acknowledge, like, you know, the fact that like all the generations after you, like, you'll be the one. Like, they, like, I hope they all write thank you notes. Be like, wow, like, you did a lot for us. Like, you did so much for us. And I think that one of the tricky things about being a cycle breaker is we know in our brain what we want to do, right? But our body beats our brain every time in life. Every time. Every time we feel before we think as animals we do, right? It's actually what makes us survive. Like, if you were walking toward oncoming traffic and you were like, I think I'm safe. And you were walking, your body would put you back on the curb. Like, thank goodness our body acts first. And so being a cycle breaker, we have to actually think about what our body has learned in terms of circuitry, what were our early experiences and how can I actually start to give myself what I always needed and never got. Cycle breaking actually starts by changing the way you treat yourself, Mm. not changing the way you treat your kids. You have to start by rewiring what's inside. And then that's how we give something different. And if I think about the political implications of that, I mean, it's just massive. Like we all, you know, grow up in this family home and we internalize it as the truth. Mm. Our parents' beliefs, the way our parents talk about things. And we have to, because that's the environment we have to survive as a kid. So you have to like figure out how to align yourself. And yet, like, I do think a big part of becoming an adult is like, wait a second, I wasn't born with that belief. Whatever the belief is, I was not born with any political belief when I was a baby. I'm pretty sure that's true. No babies are coming out looking, you know, uh, you know, to take stances on certain things. So 
becoming adult is all like, wait, all these voices in my head politically probably weren't mine to begin with. How, if I put them a little bit outside me, like, what do I think? What do I believe? Like, do I, maybe I'm aligned with some of them? Maybe not, right? And that not only I think is, you know, how so many things politically could change, right? But that's how we like live lives that are like consistent with our values, right? Rather than this kind of constant, almost like regurgitation of something that wasn't ours in the first place. Well, I know so many of our listeners, though, are going to be dealing with that cycle breaking while the people who perpetuated the cycles are still in their lives. And so how do you hold that? How do you hold that good inside? You know, we talk a lot about this in our book, these different expectations across generations. I think you see a ton of this with COVID, where there were power shifts, where there were these undercurrents of control. You're an adult child, and now you're trying to control me. And you're trying to break that cycle of we don't control each other, we trust each other, but they're still in that cycle. How do you how do you hold that they're your parents or your siblings who maybe chose a different path are still in that cycle, but also still good inside? Yes. So a couple things. I think number one is we have to really think about our relationship with our family as we get older. And how much space there is for divergence, like how much space there is for differentiation. And that doesn't mean if there's not space, you cut off. I mean, you might do that, but just like to take a, take a survey, how much do, let's say my parents, how much do my siblings tolerate the fact that I'm different from them? Mm. And I think again, in certain family systems, we've learned early on to internalize difference as fault and danger because early on we might've been different. We got punished or we got yelled at. We got derision. We got mockery. We get these things out like, I'm just joking. You're like, that's not joking. You have a joking tone to try to, you know, get away from the fact that you're being extremely aggressive to me. And like, I won't take that. Right. So like we have to just take an inventory. How much tolerance is there for difference? Right. And I think that also gives us clues to like how much space we need to protect ourselves right? Because what can happen? Like if everyone visualizes themselves in a tennis court and you're on one, one baseline, and let's say it's your parents on the other baseline, what happens is, or their opinions, it leaves their side of the court and somehow it comes to our side and like comes into our body as our fault or our wrongdoing, as opposed to going back to a two things are true perspective. Wait, my parents, I can even say my parents are good inside with political beliefs that I don't agree with. And I'm gonna have to figure out how to navigate that. But Let me watch for the times when I'm with them where their beliefs seem to like come out of their body and somehow come into my body as something's wrong with me and I'm stupid or something's wrong with me and I don't get it or something's wrong with me and I have to change my opinion. And and what we have to really do in that situation, you can see me visually, no one listening can, but like I'm putting my hands up like (laughs) right around my chest and I'm pushing out. Like I actually find that useful like with families is being like, whoa, whoa, I'm giving that back to you. That's your belief. That is your belief on your side of the tennis court. You believe these things. I can believe different things. And actually, if you continue to act in a way where you can't hold your beliefs on your side and my beliefs on my side, it's going to be really, really hard to get together because it feels like my my very being is under attack. Like you can't, going back to the two things are true perspective, it's really hard to be in relationships with people, close relationships where people can't hold the strength of their belief and the strength of someone else's belief, both as different, but both as real. Because then we feel eviscerated. We don't feel real to that person. We're an object in their life. They're just trying to convince us they, they actually don't want to know us. They don't want to know us. And that's sad. That's sad. And there's real loss. I think that's not talked about. Even if your parents are alive, there's real grief to be like, wow, some parents, some people really do have parents who watch their kids get older and differentiate. And maybe they struggle, but then they de- do get to a place of, hey, we're different. And I, like, I kind of accept that. And if I don't, like, I don't get another set of parents. Mm. And even if I'm an adult and tell myself I don't need them, like, I just need to give to my body. Like, that's that's hard. That's probably going to be hard to the end of time. Mm. It, it is. Well, that makes me think about how much you write about repair. Yes. And I love your writing about repair. And I And I love remembering that repair happens following that rupture where we can't hold both perspectives. Yes. We can't deal with the tennis court yes. as it is. I wonder what you think repair requires, especially if we talk about repair beyond two people and think about it in a much broader context. That's such a beautiful question. I think the thing that repair, right, just to define it for everyone, what is repair? I think it's going back to a person or a group, right, whatever it is, and kind of adding human elements that were missing in the first place. 
right? So things feel bad because there's judgment. Things feel bad because there's a kind of maybe verbal assault on someone. Things feel bad because we're in convincing mode. Things feel bad because they're screaming and words we don't want to say. And what elements are missing there were probably connection, leading with curiosity. I think curiosity and judgment are also two opposites to think about, right? So leading with curiosity, you can never be judgmental of someone when you're curious about them. It's impossible, right? Because you look at a difference as something you can learn more about, not something you're trying to take them out of. In another way, just repair is a way of reconnecting after a moment that you weren't connected. And I think the thing repair requires, whether you're talking about me with my kid or like bigger, you know, more sociological or political issues, is it actually requires me as the repairer to find my goodness under the behavior I did that I would repair for. Mm-hmm. And this is even true. I'll start small and then we can go big and you two will help me go big because then maybe that's hard. Like I'm not as used to that leap. But like, let's say with my kid, I yell at my kid. I call them a spoiled brat, right? Yes, I've done both those things often, right? So if I'm going to go to my child and say some version of, hey, I'm really sorry I said those words. Like, yes, we are in a frustrating situation, but it's never your fault when I say mean words. It's never your fault that I yelled and I love you and that was scary. You were right to feel that way and I'm working on it. Some version of that. Before I do that, I have to be willing to face the truth of what I did. Mm. You can't repair for something. When people don't apologize, they seem like assholes, but, and, and I'm not saying on the surface, they're not, it, it's, it's not a good quality, but really what's happening for them underneath is like, I can't tolerate the fact that I did that thing. Yeah. And so to apologize, I have to face the fact that I did that. And that would like eviscerate me. And actually that really shows a collapse again of behavior and identity, right? It's the difference between I did this awful thing. And that means I'm a bad person versus I'm a good person who did something pretty awful. And after I repair, I want to really think about that because I want to act more in line with my own values. So how did I get there? I'm going to bring curiosity to that. So I actually think we have to repair with ourselves before we repair with others. Mm-hmm. And I think repairing with ourselves involves finding the good person under the bad behavior, right? I didn't mess my kid up forever, Becky. I'm in this bathroom. I didn't mess my kid up forever. It, this event didn't define me. I'm a good mom who yelled at her son. Yeah. I'm a good mom who yelled at my son. I'm going to do some more thinking about that. Now I can face the behavioral truth because I found my my safe, good identity, right? We need to find that. And so what does that mean in a larger way, right? Like when people in groups have acted in ways they're not proud of, as long as they're so invested in not facing that own reality about themselves, they will never repair. Mm. They can't repair. They're physiologically unable to repair because they're defending their goodness by avoiding that behavior that would threaten that internal goodness. And so it's it's like, we're not repairing nothing to do with that relationship, but like that person or that group is a pawn in our own psychological game. So you have to be able to say like, I've done things I'm not proud of. Yeah. Like I, you know, and it doesn't make me, you know, a horrible devil. Yeah. It doesn't like I'm a good person. This we're a good group. And so knowing that I can now go to someone or go to a group and say, Hey, that probably felt really bad. And that was ineffective for both of us. Right. I think, I think another thing I think about a lot is when we're in conflict with someone and the political implications of this are bananas. When we're in conflict with someone, meaning like we have a difference, we approach them in two ways. The first way is I'm on one side of the table and you're on the other side of the table and I'm looking you like you're the problem. Mm-hmm. The other way is I am on the same side of the table with you and we are looking together, gazing in the same direction at the other side of the table at the problem. And unless you're in that second mode, zero impactful, effective things will ever happen ever. Because we all know when someone's looking at us, like we're the problem, we feel an attack of our goodness. And then our energy has to go to defending that. And I actually think in parenting, one of the things I say more than ever to parents is before you intervene with your kid, notice what mode you're in. Because I promise you, don't even think of a strategy until you get yourself in the mode. It's not like my kid is being difficult in the morning, not getting ready. It's getting ready is really hard. I wonder how we can figure this out together. And politically, the only thing that happens is the first mode. Yeah. Right. The only thing. Right. I mean, I think one of the most helpful terms I've learned, this is was in Mary Trump's book oddly enough, but it's very helpful to me. And she describes psychic survival. And I think that's like what you're trying to get at. People are in psychic survival. Like they cannot admit or be curious because that, if you've been doing that for your whole life and decades and decades of compounding behavior, like that is a real lift. And I think what you're advocating 
and what you're talking about is truly revolutionary because I think one of the places I struggled in the book is, you know, I think we overemphasize individuality in the United States. And I think we we put too much emphasis in this weird way on individuality and identity and not not needs, because I know we all like sort of ignore our needs in real ways, but consumer needs maybe, like these shallow mm. needs, right? And I think like this, what you're calling, I think what I would have called community, you're calling connection. And I think it's a brilliant word because I think what we're really trying to work out here is a new way of being. We had the tribal way of being that didn't work, right? We it's too much. It's our brains go into can go into really bad places when they're in when that tribal mode. And pure individuality is lonely and people need each other and we are really forging a new path here. And I think for me like especially in the political context what I say all the time is can, we can all agree we want what's best for our kids. So it's like you are this good inside we're trying to forge a new path this Venn diagram of somebody who might have a very different parenting approach from me whether they're in my family or they're across the political aisle or whatever like we can all agree we want what's best for our kids. And I holding know. that and like finding a space for that connection across Maybe just in that one single space, like we we're trying to forge a new path here. We're trying to do something that hasn't quite been done yet, especially in, you know, the United States or even human history. This like new path of connection where we're holding the individual, we're holding that need for connection and we're trying to do it in a different way. And that's hard. So hard. Right. And I think it's like we're, oh, we always have to choose kind of like I can be connected or I can be right. Mm. Period. Yep. And the more I choose being right, there is kind of, you're saying this like kind of retreat into an individuality, right? But I think like that there's a paradox that like the way we really connect with others yes. also has to come with like a connection to our mm-hmm. good inside self. Yep. That's what allows us to see differences. That's what allows us to be curious because we don't feel like our individuality is being threatened in that moment. So it, it really, I think this like self and community, self and connection like they're partners, yes. they're really partners. And you can't find yourself. You find yourself in more deep ways through connection with other people. Like you find your difference and you find full expression of it. And I think yes. you're so right. And I think that that moment, I mean, I was like conditioned by the end. The second I read a point in your book where you'd say, place your hand on your heart. I didn't even have to read what came next. I started crying. Like it was this real situation because it's just that moment of like, I'm here. I matter. I also matter because this of this larger connection and contact to those around me helps me feel that I matter and that I have needs and that I'm loved. And you're right. It's such a it's such a paradox. And man, does it find the fullest expression in parenting. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast15. like there's a timeline component to all of this too because when you talk about connection capital versus behavior modification you're saying take the long view yep instead of believing that if i let this one thing slide without a real harshness about it and without real consequence to it then i'm setting them up for a parade of horribles in their lives and this is something we talk about politically all the time, all the time. if you want to connect with other people you cannot treat Every issue, like it is the only issue, the most important issue. If this one time we compromise on this one bill, all is lost. And I think that parallel, if we can practice what you're talking about in our homes, we can practice it in civic spaces so much more effectively. I think so. And I, I think it's really powerful to notice. I call this the like fast forward thought error that like we have a moment today. Yep. We kind of have an intuition about like what would feel right or like what, but then we have the fast forward thought and we're like, wait. Here's what this means 30 years. And then then we end up responding based on the fear rather than the reality inside of us. And then we perpetuate the fear, right? Exactly. So I have to stick to my beliefs and not compromise because if I don't, I will never get anything that I want across, you know, across the line for the next 30 years. It's like, what? Mm -hmm. Like we just let fear take over our body. We let fear and honestly, the least generous interpretation of someone take over. And we do this with our kids. Yes, we do this with our kids also in a, you know, in a microcosm. We do this with ourselves too. It's yeah. like, okay, I didn't work out this morning, even though I said I want to. It doesn't mean I'm like lazy and I'm like gonna be like a horrible, like, okay, I just like I just needed to sleep in today. Like I can trust myself. It comes from a lack of trust. It comes from the idea that I need to prove a bigger thing today, that I can't trust development and time. Right. And, and I think there's a, I'm, I'm sure the implications here are, are broader too, but there's a huge irony with our kids, right? Because parents are like, okay, so my kids said, I hate you and I'm not punishing them. And they'll say like, because I'm following your approach, but you know, like th- is my kid just going to say, I hate you now to their boss. Like they can't say that it gets, we get so concrete and linear. The reason I'm not punishing my kid when they say I hate you is because there was a feeling and there was an urge underneath that my kid did not yet have the skill to manage. And I think we all know shame and punishment and blame have never motivated anything positive in human history. And so I am not punishing my kid. I'm going to hold a boundary. And so I'm like, whoa, if you keep saying that, I am going to walk away because I know you're mad and I care, but I also know there's other ways you can communicate with me. But then I'm also going to say, you know what? Something led to that. And I care more about how you're feeling than how that feeling happened to come out of your mouth. So let's cool off and figure out what's going on because I'm on your same team. You know what that's going to do? My kid is going to learn the skill to manage the anger because I don't want my kid to say, I hate you at their boss. This means when they're mad at their boss, they're going to have the regulation skill to talk to them more effectively. Of course, I know my kid can't say I hate you to their boss when they're 30. Obviously, this is the way you get there. We have to pause that moment and realize, actually, people are like, are you letting your kid off the hook? 
you want to let someone off the hook for change, add punishment and shame. Yeah. They literally will never learn a skill and they'll be cast into the bad kid role. Both of things mm-hmm. will make it impossible for them to change. If you want to leave someone on the hook to, for change, sure, of course, always set our boundaries and prioritize curiosity and connection because that is how people actually change. Well, and that's what we tell people. It's just the muscle memory. It's just doing Mm -hmm. it enough and seeing that the bottom didn't fall out and your child didn't become a maniac or that political conversation happened again and you had another chance. Like, and we just tell people, like, I cannot shortcut this for you. You just have to start doing it and realizing this feels different because it is it is this like weird paradox where to trust ourselves We have to give that trust away to other people because I think on our cellular level, we realize like we are all the same. And so when we that flow of trust flows out of us, it's like it builds and it doesn't feel like it will. I think there's a real scarcity mindset where our brains are in. I don't know where we're taught, where we say if we give it away, we won't get it back. Yes. But it's not true. And it's just but you have to do it to feel it. You do. And I think it goes back to that like is my fundamental belief that people are bad inside or good inside? Am I just looking at everyone like they're just waiting to take advantage of me? And then I I also think like naming something, even politically, and I'm not, now I'm stepping way out of my, you know, expertise, but saying something, hey, look, like this compromise, I have to be honest, actually makes sense to me. I just have to say something. The thing that would make me not do it is the fear that if I compromise here, I'm not going to be able to get you to compromise. And so I just want to name that because I would hate for that to actually be the thing that gets in our way of going forward. But I want to let you know that's on my mind because I know we'll come to the table again and I will expect a little bit more generosity on your side. And like, I hope you feel, you know, I hope you see it the same way. Again, now we're literally like there, like literally I'm looking at this person who thinks differently as the same side of the table. Like we are both trying to solve the same thing. We are both trying to make change. We're trying to make progress. Like we're on the same team. Yeah. We really are. You're almost more on the same team with people who disagree with you than the people who just want to reinforce all your beliefs because the only way you're going to make change is by connecting with those other people. So those are your real teammates. Yeah. And sometimes, look, you're not on the same team. Sometimes you might compromise and the next time they go, sorry, we're not doing it this time. Like, but that's you still learn something. <laughs> you know, you still Ooh. learn something. This isn't sometimes the I think the ways in which we interact politically or civically, like there is no connection. There is an opposition. And sometimes we just have to acknowledge that. And that's okay. We're not saying that doesn't exist. We're not saying we're always going to be on the same team working towards the same goal. But there's still a role for curiosity because curiosity can also serve you the next time you come to the table. Always. Curiosity, like it always helps, mm-hmm. right? Because even if you don't want to work with someone, being curious at least gives you more information to understand them. If you want to yep. end up using that for other, it's still going to help you. Because you might still have to work with them whether you want to or not. Well, and that reminds me of the phrase that I've used a hundred times at least since I read it in your book just a few days ago, <laughs> which is like, sometimes we can't make it better right now mm-hmm. and we just have to get through it. And I love that so much. The book is Good Inside, which is descriptive. Uh, it is excellent all the way through. And we are so grateful that you spent some time with us, Dr. Becky. Again, thank you to Dr. Becky and to all of you and to the people of Oklahoma City, both at the Oklahoma City Community College and the Junior League of Oklahoma City for giving us such an incredibly warm welcome this week. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday with our thoughts on the January 6th hearing. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Cousins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. 
I'm going to go get my I'm a good parent having a hard time tattoo now. It's fine. It's going to it's going to really serve me.